Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. One of us puts uh, an up for camper vans, and one of us is a little bit like this for camper vans. You can guess which one that might be. But as we were travelling out to Broken Hill through those vast empty plains, uh, we were listening to a book by a gentleman called Mark Frogop, an unusual name. It was called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And it was on lament. And I don't know about you, but I have never sort of come to grips with this idea of lamenting. And as we listened to that book, The Spirit of God touched both of us, actually, and I began to think, is there a process here that God wants us to understand and to experience? When I think back over life, no one taught me to cry. I just did. But in the Bible, it seems as if God wants us... It's fading in and out, isn't it? It seems as... Is this one on? It seems as if God wants us to learn to lament because somehow we can lament the pain in our life to the promises that he has for each one of us. There's the possibility of bringing our tears and our pain to a place of soothing. It was interesting because 15 years ago, we were asked to go to Uganda. Are we now echoing you a little bit, Owen? Is that better? We were asked to go to Uganda and to teach the Acholi people some things about relationship. But the Acholis had been subjected to some terrible atrocities by a guy called Joseph Coney. And Paula and I were just struggling with, well, what in the world can we from our safe, secure Western place give to these dear couples in the north of Uganda that would be helpful? And it was Paula's idea that perhaps what we could do is go through the book of Lamentations and find out what God would have done in that situation. And and that's what we did. And we were the witness to those brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually went into the market and bought some drums Mm. and, uh, and gave them to everybody so that they could compose a lament. So we were actually witnesses to these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ learning to lament. They gifted us with the privilege of watching them come to grips with some of the terrible pain in their life. I always remember the final day and uh, those drums were brought out and they began to sing and to dance like I have never experienced before. I did not understand the words but I was crying all of the time because I caught hold of their ragged, raw emotion as they came to grips with the the terrible pain in their life. You know, they gave me another gift that day because I saw somehow that hope began to blossom. I saw it in their faces. I saw it in the way that they were vulnerable to each other and to us and to God. There seems to me that there's a connection between hope and vulnerability. 
It's almost as if vulnerability is the ragged edge of hope. But I came away from that experience quite angry. I was asking a lot of how questions. I was saying to God, how in the world could they forgive? Could I forgive if I were them? How could they live with the memories, or some of them, the guilt that they bear? How could their relationships ever be repaired? How could God allow this? How could they trust him again? How in the world could they risk to hope again? I realised then, as I look back, that I was an observer at that time. I was not a participant. I was watching. I was nowhere near the pain in my own life. I had no pattern for processing the pain. I was in actual fact trying to push it away. Kubler-Ross says there's five things that I identify when we're going through grief. And I think that's very helpful to be able to say to someone when they're grieving, oh, this is what's happening. This is, this is where you are. But she does not provide a way to move from our pain to a place of soothing and in God's world, a place of promise. It's almost as if that pain and that grief and that loss is a force just acting on us. And I had no idea on how I could process that in my life. Actually, it was Paula that was f the first time, or the first one of us, to begin to grab hold of this idea of lament and to use it. Remember, it was at the Wailing Wall. Mm. Um. Many of you have communicated to me that you've just read my latest blog, which is about my mother. And she died about 14 years ago. And I remember at the time, because she was such a difficult, bitter woman and leading up to her death was very painful, uh, I wanted to do something to let it go. And it was actually your idea. Just before she died, I had written her a letter, not intending to give it to her. I just needed to get out what was inside. And we knew that we were going to Jerusalem. And Barry's idea was, why don't you put it in one of those little cracks in the Wailing Wall where the Jewish people put their prayers? And so I did. I went up to that Wailing Wall and I wailed. And my little piece of paper may be still in that wall. But there was something about standing gets me now, something about standing with the Jewish people and their displacement and their sense of never belonging. And I just identified with them in that moment and wailed along with them. It was very healing and very um, instrumental in me being able to let it go. Yeah, I can remember, I think we both shed some tears that day. Uh, I can always remember Paula coming up from the Wailing Wall with this shawl on her our shoulders and a, a headscarf and the tears pouring down her face. Yeah. Mm. And it's just that attitude that the Jewish people, the, the religious ones, would be uh, going like that towards the wall and it was in a place of grief. And the Old Testament teaches a lot about lament. Mm. There's 150 psalms. One third of them are laments. David, when he lost Jonathan and Saul, Jonathan's father, he wrote a lament and then he instructed 
his soldiers, take this throughout all Israel. I want, them to I want to teach them to lament. Hopefully as we go through Psalm 13 today, you'll be challenged as we were challenged, that there's something here that God wants us to learn, not only as individuals, but as a community of believers as well. There's a very consistent and discernible pattern in the Psalms of Lament. Mark Frobob in his book just breaks it down into a simple little um, number of words. Turn, complain, ask and trust. We're just going to break up each of those ones and uh, share uh, our thoughts on... The ones that we, we got stuck in. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good way of putting oh. it. And I'm going to start with the turn part. In the first couple of verses of Psalms there, David writes down and he uses a refrain and it's, how long, how long, how long? But in the very first how long, he says, how long, Lord? And that's the turn. So David in his pain immediately goes to God. The first movement is to turn to God. How long, Lord? And the word there is Jehovah, Yahweh, the Almighty One, the only one that can change things and make things different. How long is the device he uses here? And this is the way he turns to God when he says, Lord. You know, when I look back on my life, my movement mostly has been to turn away from things. I'm quite good at turning away from things. I can remember when we came back from Uganda, it was only a couple of years after that. My son was in his 20s and I was in my 50s and I remember him coming to me and he asked me this. He said, Dad, what have you done with your pain? What would you have answered him? I don't know. I did not know. I could not tell him what I'd done with my pain. I could tell him what I did to remove my pain, to push it away from me. And I used to be, I was very good at diminishing pain by comparing it with others. There's always someone that's worse off than me. And so comparisons are sometimes pretty handy to give us perspective, but it diminishes our pain. It lessens it. It moves it away. And I have a sneaky suspicion that God wants us to move toward it and to embrace it. I could tell him what I did in order to... Um, not face my pain and that was to uh, distract from it I would read novels I would watch TV I would play sport physical exertion was terrific it would make me tired and you were pretty well. addicted to your work too <laughs> that's the last one on the list darling. you didn't have to bring it up just work, in case you forgot <laughs> work would help me to reorientate my focus or, or uh, distance my focus from the, the trouble that was happening in my life. And perhaps the worst one for me was I stopped hoping. I had a, an awkward little philosophy about hope. I realised that if I hoped, I risked being disappointed. And there was no way I wanted the feeling of being disappointed. So I would stop hoping and then if something good came along in life, it was sort of like a bonus. Mm. David turns to God. 
the hardest movements in my life have been those turn to movements. I remember the definition of repentance when I was going through Bible college and it was to turn to God from sin, not to turn from sin to God. Always the movement was to, to turn to God because in God we have the power we, have, we are given the ability to turn away from those things that have the hold on our life. And in actual fact, when we turn to God, we get his perspective of the sin in our life because sometimes ours can be a bit warped and, and not accurate. There's a gentleman in the United States called John Gottman that does a lot of work on relationships. And he says that when trouble comes into a relationship, the best movement is a turn-to movement. But the one that I'm better at is a turn away movement. It's always a difficult turn for me to turn towards Paula, particularly when it's in conflict. I've often said to her, it's difficult to hug a cactus. <laughs> but that's the movement that changes our relationship and builds a repair into our relationship. It takes a God enabling in my life. David's first instruction is to turn, to turn to God. What happens when we turn to God? Well, first of all, we become dependent. We recognise that he is the powerful one and he's the only one that can change anything. And the other part of it is we become vulnerable. What if what I want doesn't, what I want doesn't happen? There's an intense vulnerability in our turning toward God. There's also something else that happens. It's like we begin to see into another world, an invisible world, the world where God is acting powerfully, and we begin to see into it and it becomes more real to us than the world that we are living in. The best way I can describe that is, is Joseph of Arimathea was taking Jesus' body down from the cross and he was wrapping it in grave clothes. Joseph had the hope that Jesus was the Messiah. He watched Jesus from a distance and he saw what Jesus did. And in his mind and heart, Jesus was the Messiah. And yet he takes his body down. He wraps it in grave clothes and he puts it in his own tomb. He buries his hope. But in that other world, the world beyond the veil, the gates of heaven were opened. The pathway for your salvation and my salvation was thrown open and God was completing uh, his work of salvation for all of us. An amazing event was happening as Joseph was burying Jesus. There's another world that God begins to give us insight into. It's the real world, it's the invisible world, but it's more real than the one that we're experiencing here. Paul says in Romans, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. When we turn to God, our hearts begin to, to tune to the heart of God. Hope is rekindled. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says three things remain, faith, hope and love. You realise what God is saying there? That they're immortal. They're not just virtues or values. They remain. And so this thing called hope begins to arise, begins to blossom in our life as we turn to God. 
Hope looks forward to the good that is coming. David says, how long? He turns to God and he says, Lord. So the next uh, process or step in, in uh, lament is complaint. And verses 1 to 2 in Psalm 13 says, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Complaint is a central element in lament and just as well because that's a relief to me because I'm very good at complaining. It implo- I hadn't noticed. <laughs> Had to let that one go too. It implores God to be attentive to my pain. It implores him to act. And it sort of expresses his seeming lack of intervention. I want to say that complaint is always directed at God because he is the only one that can intervene. And let me say some more about that. Complaint expresses the intensity of emotion and it's very, very vulnerable. There's a list from the Bible of lament and the complaint. See if you can pick the ones for you as I go down the list. Weakened, languishing, spent, tired, losing strength, dried out and shriveled, abused and powerless, abandoned, unable to find words, groaning. It's, a, it's not just a groaning, it's a guttural anguish. Bones are crushed and the heart shattered. Have you ever felt like your bones have been crushed and your heart is shattered? Tortured, desperate, incapacitated. Ever been there? I certainly have. In message, let me get the next slide. Not working? There we go. In the message, that, those two verses say this, long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough. I've carried this ton of trouble. I've lived with a stomach full of pain. If you're in pain at the moment, those words will really identify for you. It's almost like there's a verbal wrestling with God. God, why are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? There's a questioning and there's a protesting. And complaint gives voice to our hard questions. I know, God, that you can intervene. You are able to do that. But you're not. That seems so cruel and so unfair. At a particularly difficult time in my life, I gave up on hope as well. We were not in a good place, were we? It was a real struggle to find hope. And like the prophet Jeremiah, I turned my face to the wall and I wept bitterly. I got stuck in my complaining because my deepest pain was just that, God's sovereignty on one hand and his seeming lack of intervention on the other. And it caused me to go into a real self-focused spiral 
where I gave up and I became very cynical and I became very bitter. In biblical lament, complaint is directed at God because he's the only one that can help. My heart was very demanding, very unbelieving. And I was unable to lean into true biblical lament. And it actually moved me away from God rather than towards God. And perhaps this is why. Bill Hybels a long time ago said that there's four dangerous prayers you can pray. Search me, break me, stretch me, guide me. Does that make you scared when you you hear that about praying those prayers? What makes us so scared? Perhaps it's because we don't really believe that God likes us and he has our best interests at heart. Maybe. We believe the God of the Bible, but we're not real sure about the one who wrote the book. It's very different believing the God of the Bible than knowing the one who wrote the book. We assume that his love is conditional, that he's got busier things to do than to attend to my complaints. He's quick to judge me. He's reluctant to spend time with me. I can't trust a God like that. Would you like to spend time with a person like that? I certainly wouldn't. So what's, what's your image of God? If I listed the qualities of my best friends and they know who they are, they're actually here today. They accept me, they want to be with me, they delight in me, they cherish me, they encourage me. I want to spend time with them, I long to spend time with them. If we really believed that God is who he said he is, we would come away feeling nourished and cherished and liked. (laughs) And we'd want to rush back whenever we could. My image of God was based very much on my father, kind enough but very distant, remote, not really interested in wanting to know me and what I was struggling with. So how could I complain to a God whose my my image of him was just like that? How could I trust in a God like that? This kept me stuck. John Eldridge wrote a a beautiful little quote, and I'm just going to read it to you. He says, there's just enough goodness your heart with expectation and plenty enough sadness to cut you back down. When the cutting down exceeds the rising up, you wonder if you just shouldn't stay down. You need an unquenchable hope. Just let me get my, um, my thing going because <laughs> I've lost it. <laughs> Love technology when it all works. Okay, say something, Barry. (laughs) You'll notice that I don't use technology. (laughs) There's a reason for that, isn't there? (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Okay, lastly on complaint, where else can I go for comfort and perspective? I've got nowhere else to go, so I'm stuck in my complaint, but I've nowhere else to go. What's the next movement? The next movement that uh, is discernible in these psalms of lament is the request or the asking. 
we allocated these things based on which ones were uh, particularly applicable to us. And I get I'm stuck. the complainer. <laughs> Paula chose complaining. I didn't allocate it to her. <laughs> I took asking because my asking of God, many times in the beginning I did not turn to him. All I could ever, even when I was memorising this psalm for this message this morning, it, it took me a long time to get the Lord in place. I was very good at how long, how long, how long, but not very good at recognising the turn to the Lord. My asking became demands. I did this, you should do this. And it was without any tenderness at all. I love here that David says, look on me. And answer me, Lord, my God. He's tender toward God as he begins to lay out the requests and he begins to ask God about the difficult things that are happening in his life. He says, this feels like life and death. My enemies are overcoming me. If they win all of my foes, they will begin to rejoice about me. And in the other Psalms of Lament, David brings up what God has done for him in the past. And it's almost as if it's like he's saying, well, God, you, you did it then. You, you're going to do it now. And he just draws on these experiences that he's had with God where God has wonderfully intervened in his life. When we were in Uganda the last time, Paula and I had a bit of a meltdown. We had a difficulty. We were on uh, doing one final marriage workshop and it was just as if uh, how would you describe it meltdowns are good pretty good yeah. we were at each other's throats actually about to do a marriage weekend yeah. <laughs> actually i don't recommend it actually i think you might have been complaining <laughs> i think i was <laughs> and you weren't listening <laughs> And so I can remember going out onto the veranda of the place we were staying and looking over the beautiful Lake Victoria and I began to ask in my old style, I was demanding, how come this is happening? I prayed, I did all the right things, this should not be happening. Why are we feeling this sort of oppression? And I was starting to do that and then I looked and I actually verbalised words that I've never done before. I want to be the one that just walks off the property. I want to be the one that just drops everything and doesn't care how things will turn out. I want to be the one that will say words that are careless and reckless. And I'd never voiced that before. I've always been known to be reliable and responsible, the one that will pick up things and make sure things happen. And I voiced it. And uh, we actually got through that weekend and, uh, and God blessed it. Mm. He doesn't need us. No. <laughs> and when I came back, that, that has been troubling me. How come I am overly responsible? It troubled me so much that, or intrigued me, that I thought, I'm going to go and see a counsellor. I want to know what this is about. And so a couple of weeks ago, I trotted off... Israel to have a king. He was to be the ruler of Israel. God that, sound, that looks more interesting. Is that what you say? <laughs> <laughs> I saw you immediately perked up. So here I, I am in this counsellor's office and I'm asking him, how come I'm overly responsible? And we begin to explore it a little bit. 
And he just asked me to go back over life and, and try and figure out what would happen if I wasn't responsible. And immediately I went back to a, a failure earlier in my life where things had just, everything had gone wrong. And I felt the pain of that. And I recognised that in order to avoid that pain, I would be responsible. I would be reliable. I would make sure things happened and I would manage things and, and I would stay in the event. And so I began to see that my responsibility and my, my reliability, although they were gifts from God, I was using them for myself to avoid the pain. I was trying to control life. And you know, as we began to talk, he just mentioned the word surrender. And tears came to my eyes. I recognised it. That's what this was about. It was another layer of surrender in my life that I hadn't come to. And so we were able to pray and go into a nice place there. And he says, Barry, you know, looking back at that event, God was at work. And I looked at him and I said, oh, I know that. When I look back at my life and I see where I am now, I know he was at work in those dark times. And that's what David is saying here. It's like looking beyond the veil and seeing what God is doing. He is at work. But sometimes we're in those places we can't see that. We don't have that perspective. And it's wonderful if we have a friend that can come alongside. And that friend can ask boldly on our behalf. Looking back, was God good? As the Africans say all the time. If God is moved to act, everything will change. That's what David says. How long, Lord, the one that can change all things. David asked God not to be silent. Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Sometimes the silence is deafening. Where are you? What are you doing? Aren't you hearing me? And those are dark, desolate places. And a friend can be very, very helpful in those times. But lament gives us a language to ask God. Hard questions. It's okay. I saw it with the Acholis. I knew what questions they were asking. They were asking God about the unfairness of what had happened to them, the injustice, the abuse. They were asking him about the torture that they had suffered, the disfigurement that was obvious for all to see, the rape, the scars on their physical body and, and their emotions, their internals, the unbelievable trauma that those people had suffered, grief and loss. And they were asking, why me? God gives place for those hard questions in our life. And you are probably thinking, those poor Acholi people, but is that diminishing our pain? I know that in this room there would be pain, maybe unbearable pain. We have much to lament about, but we are very good at keeping it from others and even keeping it from ourselves. Pain, if we allow it, if we lament about it, will move us 
towards the promises of God. David says, look on me. Answer, Lord my God. Perhaps it is possible by lamenting to move towards trust. And that's what got me out of complaint, boldly asking and then learning to trust. And in many of the lament psalms, there's this little but, or yet. There's a lot of buts. So he expresses his complaint and then he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's name, for he has been good to me. So David, in all of his pain, remembers God's character. And he remembers his ability to act on his behalf that he has done in the past. What David knows about God gives him confidence. His sovereignty, his goodness, his wisdom. Songs of sorrow are meant to move us from our pain to trust. And trust is what we do in the waiting. We present our request to God and then we wait. But it's not a cynical, bitter waiting. It's a trust. God, I know who you are and I choose to trust. Um, in, when we do trauma overseas or even here, we teach um, people how to do emotional containment skills so they can regulate their emotions. I believe lament is God's gift of emotional containment for us. And you just have to read through the book of Lamentations to see God's gift. I said earlier that to move from complaint, you need an unquenchable hope. <laughs> Point it the right way. <laughs> Not working yet. So there's this but... And I've read them out, so I'll let you just look at them up, up there. David voices his complaint to God, and then he sings God's praises. <laughs> He's in the midst of massive pain, but he begins to worship, even though there is no change in his circumstances. And this is the key that I have learnt God doesn't want us to trust in an outcome. He wants us to trust in him, not because of what he can do, but who he is. Trust is actually believing what we know to be true, even though a painful reality calls it into question. And I could, if we had time, I could tell you countless stories of where God has visited me in that place of pain, and showed me who he is. And it changed my complaint to trust. You talked about the Joseph of Arimathea and the cross. In the cross, can I ever say that God is not for me? He actually went through lament, even on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's actually a lament psalm, Psalm 22. Yeah. And that lament led to the greatest act of redemption. The darkness of the cross led to the empty tomb. And then it led to the New Testament that says, 
Nothing can separate me from the love of God. So based on the cross and God's love for me through Jesus, I can release everything that is dear to me to his love. And sometimes all I can pray is this little prayer, God, I know you're in control. I choose to trust you just for today. I haven't got it for tomorrow, but I can do it today. And I love the, the books, um, this little mantra he had. It says, keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. I keep saying that to myself. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. But I can do that because... Lament affirms what I truly believe. God's mercy never ends. Waiting is not a waste. The final word has not been spoken. And God is always good. You may like to um, close your eyes for this. but I, And if you're in that space, I'm just going to do a declaration of trust. And if your heart is in this place, declare it along with me. God, I don't know what you are doing or why, but I'm going to trust that you're God and I'm not. As I wait in you, I declare that you, God, are good. I put my trust in you. I place my hope in you. I declare confidence that you are in control. I declare and thank you, God, that your mercy never ends that waiting for you to answer my heartfelt prayer is never a waste and that the final word has not been spoken and that you, God, are always good. And now we're going to pray.